Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 6, Side 2. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. The acting Secretary of State, W.S. Derrick, assured the Governor of Maryland that the President deplored this violation of the rights of the citizens of his state and that the federal government would exercise all its powers in bringing the offenders to book. Thirty-eight persons, thirty-five of them Negroes, were arrested on the charge of treason. Missing among these was Parker and the Gorsuch slaves, all safely by then in Canada. Negroes throughout the country held meetings to raise money for legal counsel for the defendants, to make their stay in prison more comfortable, and to provide relief for their families. At Philadelphia, in the space of four months, a special vigilance committee in behalf of the Christiana sufferers raised $663, of which $250 came from Negro contributors in San Francisco. In two successive weeks, the Negroes of New York City held meetings with such speakers as Charles B. Ray, J. McCune Smith, William P. Powell, William J. Wilson, J.W.C. Pennington, and White Lewis W. Payne, who had spent six years in a Georgia prison for giving assistance to a runaway. A meeting of Negroes at Columbus, Ohio, late in September 1851, hailed the victorious heroes at the Battle of Christiana. At a meeting of the colored citizens of Chicago, the prosperous tailor, John Jones, was appointed chairman of a committee to receive donations, the Ladies of Chicago Mutual Protection Society subscribing $10 on the spot. The defendants spent three months in jail, but none was found guilty of the charge of treason. Indeed, the cases were dropped after the first one resulted in an acquittal. Again, the abolitionists had won a large measure of popular sympathy. There would be no annual observance of the Christiana affair, but its site became something of a shrine. When William Wells Brown came to Christiana in 1858 to deliver an August 1st lecture, he visited the Parker House and the spot where Gorsuch fell. Brown came away with the impression that no master would ever come there again in pursuit of his fugitive slave. Ohio's most dramatic confrontation between those on the opposite sides of the fugitive slave law was the Oberlin-Wellington rescue case. John Price, living at Oberlin, was seized in September 1858 as a runaway slave and rushed to Wellington, nine miles away, to await a southbound train. Learning of the act, some 50 Oberlin citizens and college students hastened to Wellington and freed the captive, sending him on to Canada. Warrants were issued against 37 of the rescuers, including 12 Negroes. 
only two of the accused were put to trial, one of them being Charles H. Langston, the thin-visaged 38-year-old brother of John Mercer Langston. The jury found Charles guilty. Permitted by the judge to make a statement before sentence was passed, Langston delivered an impassioned address before the crowded courtroom, the spectators breaking out in cheers and clapping, and the judge threatening to clear the chambers unless it stopped. Langston asserted that it was ridiculous to say that a law taking away a man's liberty was constitutional. He charged the judge, jury, and his court-appointed legal counsel with being prejudiced, and he alluded to his father's service under Lafayette in the Revolutionary War. It was, wrote brother John Mercer Langston, a speech in the interest of the abolition cause. But it deeply impressed the judge, as he admitted in giving Langston the minimum sentence of twenty days in jail and one hundred dollars fine, plus the costs of the suit. Even so, the verdict provoked widespread protest, capped by a monster meeting in Cleveland on May 24, 1859. Langston served his time, resuming his duties as secretary of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society upon his release. Langston and his fellow defendants had won a large measure of public sympathy. They had always been assured of support in Negro circles, a convention of colored men of Ohio sending a vote of thanks to those who had rescued John Price from the bloody hands of a heartless slaveholder and the ruffian deputy United States Marshal and his mercenary posse. Langston was not alone in serving a sentence for defying the fugitive slave law. In Philadelphia, in March 1860, a group of Negroes rushed upon a carriage moving toward the Baltimore Depot and bearing back to slavery a recaptured runaway, Moses Horner. But in this instance the tables were turned, the rescuers themselves being seized. Arrested and charged with obstructing the law and rioting, each of the five, Alfred M. Green, St. Clair Burley, Jeremiah Buck, Basil Hall, and Richard Williams, was fined $25 and given a 30-day sentence. Two days after the seizures, a mass meeting was held at the Philadelphia Institute, expressing sympathy for those attempting to rescue Moses Horner, alleged fugitive. A little later, Francis Ellen Watkins sounded a widely held sentiment in praising the imprisoned men, assuring them that it was a privilege to do the humblest deed for freedom. Such moral support may have had some influence on the men serving time. Alfred M. Green sent a long letter to John C. Bowers, addressed from Cherry Hill Prison, Summer Retreat, saying that although he was being well treated under the circumstances, he was lonely, seeing no one except for the jailer three times a day. But, concluded Green, he was sustained by the reflection that God was just, and that his retributive powers would one day be meted out on this guilty, hypocritical, and ungodly nation. The jail sentence of the Moses Horner Five, like that of the others charged with the same offense, simply added to the outcry against the fugitive slave law. Thus had this unpopular measure enabled the abolitionists to bring hundreds of thousands around to their way of thinking. This enactment dramatized the fugitive slave issue, giving to the Negro-originated runaway rescue work a much greater increase in strength and scope, although with little change in basic principle. Although destined to strengthen greatly the abolitionist cause, 
The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 did cause many Negroes to re-examine the whole matter of leaving the United States. In April 1852, the staunch abolitionist James G. Burney, in a letter to Frederick Douglass, expressed the belief that Negroes would do well to go elsewhere inasmuch as they could not hope to enjoy their just rights in America. By 1852, this point of view was meeting with a less frigid reception among Negroes, perhaps one quarter of them having reached an open mind on colonization. This new receptiveness to an old idea had its notable converts. Foremost among these was Martin R. Delaney. Remaining harshly critical of the American Colonization Society, Delaney nonetheless came to share its pessimism about the Negro's future in America. In his book, The Condition, Elevation, Emigration, and Destiny of the Colored People of the United States, Politically Considered, published in 1852, he reprinted in full the entire ten sections of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 as an illustration of the plight of the Negro. The remedy for prejudice and discrimination in America was departure therefrom, wrote Delaney that there have been people in all ages under certain circumstances that may be benefited by emigration will be admitted, and that there are circumstances under which emigration is absolutely necessary to their political elevation cannot be disputed. Delaney was joined by young H. Ford Douglas of Illinois, whose views were eloquently stated at a National Emigration Congress held in Cleveland in August 1854. Is not the history of the world the history of emigration, he asked? Asserting that moving away was the best resort of an oppressed people, Douglas stated that he was willing to forget the enduring names of home and country and, as an unwilling exile, seek on other shores the freedoms denied him in the land of his birth. James Theodore Hawley was an associate of Delaney and young Douglas in advancing emigration. A shoemaker by trade, Holly had, by the private study of theology, become rector of St. Luke's Church in New Haven. In 1850, he was in friendly correspondence with the American Colonization Society and was therefore ready to support the thrust for emigration following the Fugitive Slave Law. Holly held that even if the American Negro won political rights, it would do him little good because he would still face a social proscription stronger than conventional legislation. One of emigration's greatest proselytes was the influential Henry Highland Garnet, whose conversion antedated the fugitive slave law. I hesitate not to say that my mind of late has greatly changed in regard to the American colonization scheme, he wrote on January 21, 1848. I would rather see a man free in Liberia than a slave in the United States. A year later, he said that he favored colonization to any country that promised freedom and enfranchisement to the Negro. Like Garnet, some emigrationists expressed an open mind as to which country the Negro might go. The National Emigration Convention of 1854 had appointed agents to investigate the possibilities of Haiti, Central America, and the Niger Valley. But most emigrationists had some special place or region that, in their opinion, held special advantages. Liberia had its drum beaters, including Garnet himself. It had become independent in 1847, thus adding to its appeal. Two years later, Garnet expressed the opinion that Liberia would not only be a success, 
but that it would become the Empire State of Africa. With the demise in 1858 of the National Emigration Convention, it is hardly surprising that Garnet would become the founder and president of the African Civilization Society, with the avowed purpose of bringing about the civilization and Christianization of the Dark Continent. Many emigrationists expressed a preference for the American tropics rather than faraway Liberia. The foremost exponent of intertropical colonization was James T. Hawley, who held that Negroes have the most inveterate prejudice against being separated from the New World. Journeying to Haiti in the summer of 1855, Hawley met with a cordial reception and received glowing promises as to the treatment of prospective emigrants. He returned to America a lover of Haiti for life. He told Negro audiences in Connecticut, Ohio, and Michigan that it was their duty to link their destiny with their heroic brethren in that independent island. If Hawley found few emigrationists who shared his enthusiasm, it was in part due to the superior allure of Canada. In the three months following the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, some 3,000 Negroes fled to Canada, and in the ten years after 1850, the number reached over 15,000. Canada had its black supporters, including runaways like Henry Bibb and Samuel Ringgold Ward. But it also won the approval of free Negroes like H. Ford Douglas, William H. Day, and William Whipper, the last asserting that many black men were getting along well in Canada and were thereby doing a more practical anti-slavery work than they were capable of performing in the States. The chief protagonist of Canadian emigration was Mary Ann Shadd, daughter of abolitionist Abraham Shadd. Slender and somewhat tall, Miss Shadd combined an attractive femininity with an imperious manner, a combination enabling her to overawe a hostile audience or to outstare a segregation-minded streetcar conductor. To let Negro Americans know about conditions in Canada, Miss Shadd published The Provincial Freeman from 1854 to 1858, with headquarters first at Toronto and later at Chatham. The Freeman was a well-edited weekly, with due note for its predilection to contrast the alleged progress of the Negro in Canada with his alleged stagnation in the United States. In promoting emigration, Miss Shadd made frequent trips to northern cities, holding lectures, seeking subscribers to the weekly, and soliciting funds. At Shiloh Church in Philadelphia on November 19, 1855, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, the Black Swan, gave a benefit concert for Miss Shadd, paying the piano accompanist herself and scheduling a larger repertoire than usual because of the inclusion of a group of anti-slavery songs. Although sincere and not easily misled, Miss Shadd, in her speeches and writings, gave an overly optimistic assessment of the Negro's lot in Canada. Indeed, the formation of many all-Negro communities there, a development to which Miss Shadd objected, was in part a normal reaction of a people who felt discriminated against or unwanted. And, of course, all Negro settlements also stemmed from the related aim of proving that the black man was not inferior that given a chance, he could develop to the fullest the talents that were his. Thus, a successful communal experiment would affirm the abolitionist contention that the Negro was fit for something more than a slave. 
that such experiments were, with one exception, short-lived, stemmed from many causes. But crucial among them, however dimly perceived at the time, was the necessity for changing white attitudes as well as black. The emergence of emigrationist sentiment in the 1850s inevitably encountered opposition. During the 30s and 40s, Negro leaders had continued to denounce the American Colonization Society, climaxed by a two-day session at Shiloh Presbyterian Church in New York in April 1849. The meeting was called to refute the charge allegedly made in England by a member of the Colonization Society to the effect that the Negro people now gave it their support. At the two-day meeting, an imposing roster of speakers gave testimony to the contrary, among them Boston Crummel, J.W. Pennington, Ransom F. Wake, William F. Powell, Charles B. Ray, Henry Bibb, Charles Reason, George T. Downing, Frederick Douglass, and Charles Lennox Remond. But the American Colonization Society had scarcely needed his reminder of its unpopularity among Negroes. One of its branches had publicly noted that although Negroes in Philadelphia had held a celebration when the French Republic outlawed slavery in its West Indies possessions, no Negro group anywhere had held a celebration when Liberia became independent. In the spring of 1851, John Jones of Chicago wrote that no convention of colored men for 16 or 20 years had failed to condemn immigration. But, he added, the enemy still lives. Hence the Negroes continued their attack, adding no argument that was new, although voicing more doubt as to the validity of calling Africa their home. What do I know of Africa? queried William H. Topp of Albany at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery in 1852. I am part Indian and part German. A year earlier, a group of New York Negroes stated that they did not trace their ancestors to Africa alone. We trace it to Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotchmen, to the Germans, to the Asiatic, as well as to Africa. The best blood of Virginia courses through our veins. The Negroes' opposition to emigration embraced those who seemed to sanction it. Late in 1852, Governor Washington Hunt of New York, in a message to the state legislature, recommended that an appropriation be made to the American Colonization Society. New York City Negroes went into action, calling meetings on January 8th and January 13th, at which they decided to send a delegation to Albany to visit Hunt. On January 20th, George T. Downing, William H. Topp, and Stephen Myers went to Hunt's office. Wishing to be thought friendly to the colored people, Hunt received them in a gracious fashion and listened to their carefully prepared objections to his proposals. The delegates unquestionably made a favorable impression on the governor, and they left with the feeling that if a bill appropriating money for colonization ever reached his desk, he would never sign it. To Negroes opposing colonization, Harriet Beecher Stowe posed a somewhat more difficult and delicate problem than that of Governor Hunt. For while Mrs. Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was written fundamentally from an abolitionist point of view, and while it had fired up many slaves to make the dash for liberty, upon the word of no less an authority than William Still, nevertheless the book had a great flaw. George Harris, one of its leading characters, 
had remarked that the desire and yearning of his soul was for an African nationality, and under such a compulsive influence Harris had sailed for Liberia. At the annual meeting of the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society in New York in May 1853, George T. Downing and Charles B. Ray expressed regret that Mrs. Stowe had ever written the chapter favoring colonization, Ray adding that he hoped that something could be done to counteract its influence. Downing later reaffirmed his regret that Mrs. Stowe left one of her main characters in Africa, in fact, the only one that really betrays any other than the subservient, submissive Uncle Tom spirit, which has been the cause of so much disrespect felt for the colored man. From a correspondent of a Negro Weekly came an even more strongly worded condemnation. Uncle Tom must be killed, George Harris exiled. Heaven for dead Negroes, Liberia for living mulattoes. Neither can live on the American continent. Death or banishment is our doom, say the slavocrats, the colonizationists, and save the mark, Mrs. Stowe. Leonard W. Bacon, a New Haven Congregationalist minister, who himself had once favored colonization, came to Mrs. Stowe's defense. He asserted that she had told him that if she had to write Uncle Tom's Cabin again, she would not send George Harris to Liberia. Negroes were mollified by this explanation, but they wondered why it had not come from Mrs. Stowe herself, one who was hardly reticent or word-shy. Going beyond the destination of George Harris, William G. Allen attacked his concept of African nationality, terming it sheer nonsense. Professor Allen gave Harriet a little lecture. Nations worthy of the name are only produced by a fusion of races. Although Americans rolled their eyes and went into pretended fits at the mere mention of amalgamation, he continued, this country was the most interbred under the sun. Indeed, fusion of races seems to be a trait distinctive of Americans. In the decade before the Civil War, the high point of Negro objection to colonization came in 1855 at the National Convention of Colored Men at Philadelphia. Here a letter was read from Jacob Handy of Baltimore in support of emigration. Not a single delegate spoke in favor of Handy's proposal, several of them saying that his letter should be returned unanswered. Going further, George T. Downing moving that the letter be burned, thus saving the three-cent postage to mail it back. By a vote of 33 to 20, the delegates sustained Downing's stand, the burning of unpopular documents not being without precedent in abolitionist circles. Subsequently, however, this action was rescinded, the delegates deciding to return the letter. In the late 50s, the Negro leaders who opposed colonization centered their fire on the African Civilization Society. The fight was bitter and personal, Henry Highland Garnet, the society's president, reveling in a battle no matter how badly outnumbered. His opposition embraced influential black abolitionists like Downing, Purvis, Remond, John S. Rock, and William C. Nell, to name but a few. But some of these anti-colonizationists began to waver a bit, Frederick Douglass, for example. In September 1859, he had emphatically denied that he had emigrationist leanings, but a year later his mood was less adamant. 
In the spring of 1861, he accepted an invitation from the Haitian government to visit the island, all expenses paid. He was on the point of sailing when the news came that the people of Charleston, South Carolina, had fired on Fort Sumter. This event changed Douglas's plans as it did to those of millions of other Americans. Douglas immediately called off the trip to Haiti. War had come, and to him, as to other anti-slavery crusaders, war just might turn out to be abolitionism by other means. Chapter 10, The Last Chapter Shock Therapy and Crisis Come thou, sweet freedom, best gift of God to man. Not in a storm of fire and blood, I ask it, but still, at all events and all hazards, come. William G. Allen, October 6, 1852 The interest that many Negroes showed in colonization in the 50s stemmed basically from the discriminations against them in the land of their birth. In the case of emigration to Africa, there was an additional motive, a feeling of identity based on color and ancestry. As a result, many Negroes came to view the land of their fathers in a fresh light, discarding the shibboleths as to its backwardness and stagnation. But such a more positive attitude toward Africa was far short of any pan-Negro movement or black hands across the sea. For the lure of Africa could never compare with that of an America in which slavery had been wiped out and its twin offspring, prejudice and discrimination, put on the run. On the surface of things, such a brightening day was hardly on the horizon when Frederick Douglass made his plans to take a trip to Haiti. But by 1860, America was close to a civil war. This country's institutions, secular and religious, had failed to bring about the emancipation of the slaves without bloodshed. The power structure was unable to cope with slavery because slavery itself had become a key component of the power structure. Since American institutions therefore lacked the strength or will to subdue slavery, other and more revolutionary techniques would begin to take hold of men's minds. Thus, in the two decades prior to 1860, the notion of an armed confrontation mounted in intensity, however inapparent on the surface. On the eve of the Civil War, then, the idea of physical violence to free the slave was far from new. Since the time of Nat Turner, this idea of a showdown by force of arms had been a recurring theme in Negro thought. Black fire-eaters did not go out of style with David Walker, but for a time their tones were muted because black people had taken on new hope with the coming of the new abolitionists. These new friends of the Negro were strongly pacifist in method, no matter how forthright in language. They proposed to rely on reason and moral truth, opposing any efforts by the slave to obtain his rights by physical force. In their famous Declaration of Sentiments, issued December 4, 1833, the new abolitionists made their position clear. We reject and entreat the oppressed to reject the use of all carnal weapons for deliverance from bondage relying solely upon those which are spiritual and mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Five years later, the influential James G. Burney, 
assured a Southern inquirer that he did not know of a single abolitionist who would incite the slaves to insurrections. The new abolitionists were pacifists, a stance fully supported by William Lloyd Garrison, a name revered among Negroes. Garrison wielded great influence among Negroes down to 1840. Harriet Martineau asserted in 1837 that Garrison's stronghold on the Negro people was the explanation that no blood has been shed from the time his voice began to be heard until now. After the abolitionist split in 1840, Garrison's influence among Negroes waned outside of New England, and even there his word was no longer gospel, although affection for him remained constant. In the 1840s it was a Garrisonian, Charles Lennox Remond, who first voiced unpacific thoughts. In the British Isles to attend the World Anti-Slavery Convention of 1840, Remond told the Glasgow Anti-Slavery Society that he would welcome a war between the United States and England over the Canadian boundary inasmuch as such a development would bring about the freedom of the slaves. Remond was rebuked by the anti-slavery standard, which called his language hardly in accordance with the character of primitive abolitionism. In a later address to the Hibernian Anti-Slavery Society, the undeterred Remond said that the dissolution of the American Union would lead the outraged slaves to turn upon their then friendless and weakened torturers, measuring arms with them. A year later, the possibility of having to bear arms for the United States brought a cool response from a Negro weekly in New York, the People's Press. The United States and England were in dispute over the Creole, a ship which, like the Amistad, had been seized by its slaves, but which had put into port at Nassau. A diplomatic argument was inevitable, with America's Secretary of State, Daniel Webster, saying that she would demand indemnification. Negroes had little sympathy with any efforts made to repossess the 135 slaves of the Creole. Hence the People's Press pointed out that since the previous military services of black Americans had been repaid with chains and slavery, they should maintain an organized neutrality if war came. Such a position would be held until the laws, federal and state, should make the Negro a free and equal citizen. A note of militancy was sounded at a meeting called by Negroes in Troy, New York, in March 1842, to discuss the decision of the Supreme Court in Prigg versus Pennsylvania. The ruling of the court did need a word of explanation. For although it held that a state law could not restrain a master in seizing his slave, it also declared that the state authorities were not bound to assist in such seizures. After weighing the decision, the Negroes meeting at Troy passed a series of resolutions one of which expressed a full concurrence with the statement of Patrick Henry and solemnly declare that we will have liberty or we shall have death. At the Troy meeting, the chairman of the five-man committee drafting the resolution was Henry Highland Garnet, then a local clergyman. This was the man, the grandson of a Mandingo chieftain and warrior, who the following year delivered the most forthright call for a slave uprising ever heard in antebellum America. It took place at a national convention for black men in Buffalo in August 1843. Although then having appeared on the public platform only three years, Garnet already had a reputation as an orator, 
particularly for having the power to fire up his auditors in such a way as to make every man feel like daring to do. To an audience including the more than 70 delegates and scores of white visitors, the 27-year-old Garnet delivered an address to the slaves of the United States. The time has come, brethren, when you must act for yourselves, said Garnet. There was little hope of obtaining freedom without some shedding of blood. The way would not be easy, but you will not be compelled to spend much time in order to become inured to hardships. As the audience listened, some in tears and others with fists clenched, Garnet proceeded to hold up some examples of a slave who struck a blow for freedom. Denmark Vesey of South Carolina, patriotic Nathaniel Turner, Joseph Sink of the Amistad, and Madison Washington of the Creole. Garnet brought his remarks to a close with a sustained exhortation, reading in part as follows, Brethren, arise, arise, strike for your lives and liberties. Now is the day and hour. Let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. Rather die free men than live to be slaves. Remember that you are four millions. When Garnet finished, it would have been risky, according to a Buffalo reporter, for any slaveholder to have been present. The deeply moved delegates, recovering from the powerful outburst, proceeded to give it an unprecedented amount of attention. Those opposing it included William Wells Brown, Frederick Douglass, and Amos G. Beeman, the last named speaking for over an hour. The convention turned the address over to a revision committee to soften its language but even this toned-down version was rejected, although by a single vote. Garnet's address hardly sat well with white abolitionists, particularly the Garrisonians. The latter called attention to the 1833 Declaration of Sentiments, abjuring the use of force. They asked Garnet whether he, as a clergyman, found the gospel in harmony with his address to the slaves. Maria Weston Chapman deplored the kind of advice that Garnet had been getting. Trust not in counsels that lead you to the shedding of blood. In a sharp reply to Mrs. Chapman, Garnet said that she wished him to think as she did, thus reducing him again to the level of the slave. Rejecting her contention that he had received bad advice, he retorted that he was capable of thinking on the subject of human rights without any help from the men of the West or the women of the East. Be assured, he concluded, that there is one black American who dares to speak boldly on the subject of universal liberty. Despite the criticisms of the Garrisonian press, Garnet's address to the slaves left its stamp on Negro thought. A national convention of Negroes at Troy in October 1847, the first since the Buffalo meeting four years earlier, did disapprove of physical violence. We frowned down any attempt to confide in brute force as a reformatory instrumentality. But a few months later, Garnet published his 1843 address, combining it with a sketch of David Walker and the text of his forceful appeal to the colored citizens of the world. In January 1849, a convention of the Negroes of Ohio passed a resolution recommending that 500 copies of this 1848 Garnet publication be obtained in the name of the convention and gratuitously distributed. 
this resolution was not carried out, but the militant spirit it reflected is unmistakable. Five months later, Frederick Douglass gave a speech at Boston, one which indicated that he had abandoned the pacific stance he took at the Buffalo Convention six years earlier. To a packed audience at Faneuil Hall, Douglas closed a lengthy address with the remark that he would welcome the news that the slaves had risen, and that the sable arms which have been engaged in beautifying and adorning the South were engaged in spreading death and devastation there. Although this remark occasioned marked sensation, Douglas continued in the same vein. Saying that a state of war existed in the South, he asserted that Americans should welcome a successful slave uprising, just as they had recently hailed the news that the French citizens had overthrown the monarchy. Douglas took his seat amid great applause, but not without some hissing. With the coming of the 1850s, the militant tone among Negroes grew louder, spurred by the fugitive slave law and their growing belief that liberty and slavery could not escape a head-on collision. By the summer of 1853, the clergyman, Germain W. Loguen, was of the opinion that slavery would be done away with either by agitation or bloodshed, adding ominously, and I sometimes think that I care not which. A year later, H. Ford Douglas declared that he could join a foreign enemy and fight against the United States without being a traitor, inasmuch as it treats me as a stranger and an alien. In 1856, John S. Rock urged Negroes to undertake some daring or desperate enterprise in order to demonstrate their courage. Rock had been stung by a remark of Theodore Parker to the effect that if Margaret Garner, an escaped slave who put one of her daughters to death when facing recapture, had been Anglo-Saxon, the 400,000 white men in Ohio would have risen in her defense. Believing that a sectional war over slavery was likely to come, the Negro of the 1850s gave increasing attention to the question of bearing arms. In 1847, the delegates at the Troy National Convention had debated a proposal to recommend to our people the propriety of instructing their sons in the art of war. This motion was lost, but within a half dozen years a changed attitude had become manifest. A group of New York Negroes, meeting at the Shiloh Presbyterian Church in April 1851, took the position that a knowledge of the use of defensive weapons was necessary inasmuch as all history taught that every people should be prepared to defend themselves. Hence the convention urged the young men of New York, Williamsburg, and Brooklyn to organize military companies. Frederick Douglass subsequently pointed out that if a knowledge of firearms was desirable in any people, it was desirable in the Negro. William J. Wilson of Brooklyn wrote that he heartily favored the introduction of the science of military tactics among colored people. A state convention of Ohio Negroes in 1857 urged Negroes to form military companies where it was practical and where they could not be enrolled with whites. This was the overriding problem, Negroes being barred from the state militia by a Congressional Act of 1792. Our federal government, observed abolitionist William Jay, was probably the only one in the world which forbade a portion of its subjects to take part in the national defense on account of the tincture of their skin. Barred from the state militia, Negroes had formed military companies of their own.
These outfits were largely ceremonial, parading on August 1st or at the grand opening of a church or school. But without state or federal support, Negro militia companies were bound to remain small and indifferently equipped. Hence, in 1855, Rhode Island blacks were pleased when the legislature granted to the newly organized Providence Military Company of Negroes the right to make use of state arms. The legislators felt that they had done as much as they could. Certainly they had done more than any other state would do. It was in Massachusetts that the Negroes made the most sustained effort to win state support for a colored military unit. In May 1852, Robert Morris and Charles Lennox Remond appeared before the military committee of the state legislature bearing petitions for the establishment of a Negro company. Ten months later, Morris was back before the legislature, this time accompanied by William J. Watkins. The two spokesmen presented petitions signed by 65 Negroes, after which they recited the role played by the Negro in the American Revolution and the War of 1812. In 1855, the Massasoit Guards, organized the preceding year in Boston, asked Governor Henry J. Gardner for a loan of a stack of arms and equipment. Gardner replied that his attorney general had advised him that he had no power to comply with the request. Evidently, added Gardner, the framers of the Militia Act of 1792 were unmindful of the services of the Negro in the Revolutionary War. The guards thereupon announced that for the time being they would seek by subscription to raise the necessary funds. As if to attract donors, they also announced that their organization was open to all, one member assuring a reporter that he believed that white men were as good as colored men if they behaved themselves. But the guards never got state support. Moreover, in 1859, a bill authorizing Negroes to join the militia was vetoed by Governor N.P. Banks as unconstitutional, and his veto was sustained. The militant spirit among Negroes was fanned full sail in 1857 by the Dred Scott decision, in which the Supreme Court opened the territories to slavery. The decision was additionally repugnant to Negroes inasmuch as it denied their citizenship, proclaiming that at the time this country was founded, the Negro had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Your national ship is rotten and sinking. Why not leave it? counseled Mary Ann Shad Carey from Chatham, Ontario. John Peck of Pittsburgh advised his fellow Negroes to leave the country, and clergyman Benjamin S. Tanner announced that he was going to remove to Canada in the name of God. But aside from a handful of deportees, most Negro leaders reacted by staging indignation meetings. Some of the speakers at these meetings took the philosophic point of view that the Dred Scott decision might be a blessing in disguise, since, in the words of William Still, great evils must be consummated that good might come. To be a true reformer is to take obstacles in stride. Hence, many abolitionists found comfort in the belief that the Dred Scott decision was so monstrous as to boomerang against slavery, making for its ultimate downfall. But to abolitionist orators, the presentation of philosophical viewpoints in measured tones was hardly in a class with the heady language of invective and name-calling. 
At a Dred Scott indignation meeting at Philadelphia's Israel Church on April 10, 1857, with James M. Bustill presiding, Robert Purvis thundered that he owed no allegiance to a government founded upon the position that a black man had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. A month later, at the annual meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in New York, Frederick Douglass characterized the decision as a judicial incarnation of wolfishness, the product of the slave-holding wing of the Supreme Court. The Taney decision took the center stage at the convention of the colored citizens of Massachusetts held at New Bedford on August 2, 1858. This book is continued on Cassette 7, Side 1.